Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. We are in chapter 9 this morning. Just beginning this chapter. Let's begin by reading the first nine verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We'll stop there this morning. The title of my sermon will be pretty simple. The Conversion of Saul. The Conversion of Saul. That's probably in the top of most of your Bibles there on, on this section. We will obviously just cover those first nine verses. There is a, a lot here. Todd tried to convince me to go through the first 19 verses, but I told him I just don't think I could do it. It's just too much. So, uh, so I stopped at nine. Y'all can believe that if you want. But uh... Look, the storyline of Acts is steadily progressing as we get to this chapter. There are, there are several cha- uh, subjects and storylines in the book of Acts, right? Among the major storylines, obviously, is the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have seen where that began in Jerusalem among the Jews. And then we saw the expansion of that into Samaria. And just as Jesus promised it would, the gospel would continue to spread and would next be introduced to the Gentiles. Outside of Jesus, there has been no one probably more important to the growth of of believers in Jesus and faith in Jesus than the man, the Apostle Paul. This chapter will begin to expand and focus on the expansion of the gospel into the Gentile world, and Paul is in the middle of that. That said, I don't want us to to think, as we get into this, I don't want us to think that Paul's mission field and focus was exclusively to to the Gentiles. On the contrary, we will see as we continue to work through the book of Acts that when Paul would go into a new area, he would first go to the synagogue, right? He would go to the Jews first in that area, and he would preach the gospel to the Jew first and then unto the Gentiles. But in our passage today, we see the unconverted Paul, known now as Saul here in our passage, seeking to go first to the synagogues. His focus is on the Jews here, obviously, on the synagogues in this new area outside of Jerusalem. Except here in our passage, Paul's focus was not preaching the Gospel, right? It was not preaching the faith he had in Jesus. It was seeking to stamp out the name of Jesus. Now, we were introduced to this most prominent figure here in Acts, again, outside of Jesus, in Saul of Tarsus back at the end of chapter 7. And then there at the beginning of chapter 8. It was there that Luke tells us that Saul was... He was there at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. 
Luke went directly from there to explain that Saul went on ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and having them put into prison. We learned that this was a very intense persecution and, and uh, by the hand of Saul, the church began to scatter from Jerusalem to escape this persecution. For, this, for the next chapter after that, for chapter 8 and over the course of, of several sermons, we followed the evangelical work of Philip and the advancement of the gospel to the Samaritans and to partial Jews, as, as I mentioned to begin with. Luke took the time to show there how the gospel went out from Jerusalem, right? It began to spread to these other parts of the world, just as Jesus had said it would. But there was still a lot going on back in Jerusalem during that time. I mean, things had not stopped spinning, not stopped going on there in Jerusalem. Saul was still very actively seeking out Believers, those of the way, those who had faith in Jesus, and he was attempting to destroy them, to destroy the church of Jesus. Chapter 9 then takes us back to Saul. We see the beginning here uh, in, uh, in this chapter that he was still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. So the last time that Luke wrote of Saul, he merely wrote that he was forcefully dragging men, women, and children out of their homes and putting them into prison for their faith. I noted then that it was possible Saul was part of more than just that, though, right? It was very possible that he was arresting these Christians in hope that many of them would, would be put to death, that they wouldn't just stay in prison. They would ultimately put, be put to death. And chapter 9 bears that out here in verse 1. Breathing out these threats and murder against the church, Saul went to the, the high priest. He wasn't satisfied with how much he had done to this point. He knew there were still believers. There were still those who claimed that Jesus was risen, that this man who was put to death was somehow still alive. And Saul was a very zealous man. He, he hated those who followed Jesus. I, I think that's clear to this point in his life. He hated them. They were a blasphemous offshoot of Judaism, deserving of death in his mind, and had begun to threaten everything that he stood for, really, at this point. So Saul intended to destroy the church. That's what he wanted to do. We can make no qualms about it. That was his intention. It seems that he had made it his very life's mission to seek out every disciple of Jesus that he could find and have them arrested hopefully, eventually, again, have them put to death. It is hard to imagine at this time or really any time in the future in the history of the church, anyone who was more opposed or has been more opposed to the church and who would be more zealous in an attempt to try to end the church, right? So Saul decided to leave the synagogues there in Jerusalem and head into Damascus. Saul apparently knew or believed that there were a number of Christians there now in, in Damascus that were there in the synagogues and attempting to preach Jesus there. At roughly 150 to 170 miles from Jerusalem, Damascus was about a six to seven day journey by foot. It's very possible that this group of believers in Damascus, they came about due to the very persecution that Saul had spearheaded back in Jerusalem. They had left because of the persecution, and ended up in Damascus. And as, as we know from last chapter, those that had fled Jerusalem, those believers that had fled Jerusalem because of the persecution, they had gone into these other areas preaching the gospel, right? They didn't just go and stay silent. They went out and preached the gospel. 
And if they ended up in Damascus, there's no reason to believe that that's not exactly what they did in Damascus. In fact, went to the synagogues to preach Jesus. I doubt Saul, ironically, had considered it at the time, but his attempts to destroy the churches of Jesus had actually resulted in their growth, right? In, in the growth of the church of Christ. Obviously, Jesus' Jesus's will was for His gospel to go out from Jerusalem and into the whole world eventually. But it is fitting irony that He used the wickedness of Saul's efforts to stamp out the very memory of Him to instead spread the good news even more, right? Look, wicked men act on their own accord. There's no question. I mean, we have wicked natures. No one's forcing us to sin. But God often uses the sinful actions of men to accomplish His good will. We see that here. We see that with Saul. The ultimate example of that would be at the cross, right? I mean, wicked men murdered Jesus because it was the desire of their hearts to do so, yet Jesus laid down His life so that wicked men would be reconciled to God despite their sin and then live eternally with Him. What a great God. Now, Saul was certainly not thinking in those terms at this moment, right? He was just intent on arresting people of the way. But he couldn't just show up in the synagogues there in Damascus on his own authority. He didn't speak for the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. Not yet, anyways. In order to get authority, he went to the high priest, as we see here. Most likely, that was Caiaphas at the time. And he asked for letters to the synagogues there in Damascus. Now some commentators believe that these were letters of extradition, which granted Saul the power to go into these synagogues, arrest Jews who claimed to have faith in Jesus, bring them back to Jerusalem, and await trial. John Polhill states, though, that instead of letters, extradition, letters of extradition, these letters were likely introductory letters from the, or from the Sanhedrin to the synagogues in Damascus in order to secure their support in Saul's effort in apprehending the fugitives belonging to the way and return them again to Jerusalem for trial. Either way, whether they were actual letters of extradition or just letters of support for that purpose, the purpose of these letters was the, or the letters was the same. But to allow Saul to arrest these believers in Jesus Christ in Damascus, and then bring them to Jerusalem for trial. As Paul testified in Acts 22, chapter 22, verse 5, he said, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. That's exactly what the letters were for, right there. Now, we saw earlier in Acts that when the church first went public there in Jerusalem, the apostles and other disciples were found out in the public preaching, right? They were, they were openly preaching, witnessing, and performing miracles. Most often, this was done in and around the synagogues, as we saw there in, in, in Acts. But it is likely by this time that the disciples of Jesus in Jerusalem, because of the persecution, had primarily gone into hiding, and they were no longer active in the synagogues for the most part. Even if they had not been afraid of persecution, they likely would have been kicked out of the synagogues by this point, not allowed in and unable to enter in to, to preach and, and be there anyways. That was not the case there in Damascus. That had not happened there in Damascus as of yet, it seems. Although the Sanhedrin fiercely opposed believers in Jesus, it was not common for them to reach outside of the synagogues there in Jerusalem and direct other synagogues in other areas in what they are to do. 
So the Jews in the synagogues there in Damascus, they likely would not have been arresting or persecuting any of the disciples of Jesus at this point who were there. Saul sought to go where these disciples of Jesus then could easily be found and remove them from the synagogues to keep them from further spreading the blasphemy that he saw in their message and then bind them up again and bring them back to Jerusalem. We aren't specifically told that he got these letters here, but we do find him next on the road to Damascus. So we, of course, can assume that he got them. That's, that he, he, were, he was able to attain, obtain them from Caiaphas, the high priest. This wouldn't be a shock considering the hatred that we have seen from the Sanhedrin and the high priest for Jesus, right? And the hatred that they extended to the followers of Christ in Scripture so far. They would have been more than happy, I think, and more than willing to use their authority to try and shut down these disciples of Jesus as well. According to verse 3, as Saul was on his way, though, to Damascus with hatred in his heart and murder on his mind, things changed very suddenly. We're told that a light shone from heaven all around him. As he rode or he walked in, in full confidence and in just arrogance even, this light appeared and forced Saul to the ground. Now Luke tells this important story of Paul's conversion three separate times. This is obviously the first time that we get it. He tells it twice more in Acts, both by the testimony, the personal testimony of Paul as he's preaching and talking to others. He does that in Acts 22 and then again in Acts 26. But when Paul speaks of this light in Acts 22, the next time that Luke writes of this conversion story, Paul states that it, it shone from heaven around noon. So this was in the middle of the day when Paul sees this light, when this light suddenly shines around him. It would have been during the time of the day when the light of the sun generally is at its brightest, right? There in the middle of the day. Yet this light was much greater and brighter than the sun at noon. Paul says that, this, that the very thing, or says that very thing in chapter 26, again, another part of his testimony, he says, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Daryl Bach states that this term refers to something shining all around an area. It is not hard then to see this light as the glory of the risen Jesus, which fell on Saul that day as he was on his way to Damascus. And as Saul fell to the ground, he heard a voice speak and address him directly. He called him by name. He said, Saul, Saul. Look, there was no question at this point who this voice was talking to, right? Saul could not escape this. The voice asks a very personal and direct question as well. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I imagine that Saul was not entirely sure who this was at this point. Contrary to what is popular today, having a voice from heaven speak directly to you is not common. Even in the days of the apostles and soon after Jesus had been walking the earth, it was still not a common thing to hear directly from God. But had Saul ever imagined that he would hear from God directly, this could not be what he would imagined he would hear. Why are you persecuting me? Look, in Saul's mind, he was zealously serving Yahweh. He was living a righteous life. 
he considered himself beyond reproach, really, at this point. He would later admit that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, when he wrote, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. This perhaps then led to the question from Saul, Who are you, Lord? This couldn't be Creator God Yahweh, right? The God of Moses and Abraham. The God who gave the law which Saul so slavishly and fervently attempted to follow. This could not be Him. Now Saul asked this question, he addressed the voice as Lord. We see that. And the word Lord here is the term Kyrios, which was a term often used of God in the New Testament, but it was also just a general term of respect for someone who you knew to be in a higher position or a position of authority. It didn't necessarily mean that Saul was calling him a God here. Most believe then that Saul realized this voice, this heavenly voice, was one that he was to respect, right? That he, he, did not, uh, he, he knew he was subject to, but he did not fully realize at this point yet that God Himself was speaking to him. So this, this, at this point, when he says, Who are you, Lord? This is not a confession to the Lordship of Jesus by Saul just yet. But it does indicate a high respect for the one speaking. Saul is listening, and he had no other choice at this point, right? If Saul had been surprised by the sudden bright light and question of persecution from the voice originally, then the question that came next from this voice would have brought Saul to complete Shock and despair, I would imagine. The voice answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus, the one whom Saul hated with all of his being. Now, there's no question in my mind that Saul had heard a lot of Jesus at this point. I've said it before, but I think he was probably in the synagogue with Stephen when Stephen had been preaching and debating prior to being stoned. We, we know he was at the stoning of Stephen, so he obviously heard Stephen's sermon there. He could have heard even more about Jesus and the preaching of the Gospel as he was going into churches and dragging Christians from their homes. But to this point, he had done all that he could to dismiss the truth of the Gospel. He had tried to reject it entirely. And in fact, he had grown an intense hatred for it. Now he finds himself on the ground, bowing to the divine voice of Jesus Himself. Had he been able to continue to reject it, there's no doubt in my mind that he would have. Had he been able to overcome it or deny it, then there's no doubt he would have. I would argue that there's never been a man more zealously against Jesus than Saul to this point. But once Jesus spoke to Saul here, there was no way to deny him any longer. And Jesus doesn't even entertain that possibility as he talks to Saul here. We aren't left to think that Jesus was wondering how Saul would react. He doesn't leave the conversation with Saul up in the air and hope that Saul would respond positively. No, Jesus told Saul in very certain terms who he was, and then He gives Saul a command to serve. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now before we move to this command, I want, to notice, I want you to notice with me what Jesus said about the persecution here. It was Jesus 
whom Saul was persecuting, is what he says, right? Why do you persecute me, Jesus speaking? Now, we have no record of Saul ever speaking one word to Jesus while he walked the earth. And he very well could have, but we have no record of that. We have no indication that Saul was part of the trial of Jesus or the crucifixion. Further, Jesus makes this comment about Saul persecuting him in the active voice. Meaning that this was something that Saul was actively and presently doing. Right? Yet, Saul had only been arresting and persecuting the disciples of Jesus. He hadn't done this to Jesus himself, had he? So how was Saul persecuting Jesus then? Why did Jesus say you were persecuting me? Well, here we clearly see Jesus identifying with believers. Jesus spoke in similar terms when He was on the earth. In Matthew 25, while speaking of the final judgment to come on the world, Jesus stated that He would place the sheep of the world on His right and the goats on His left. To those on His right, to the sheep, Jesus called them blessed by His Father, for they would inherit the kingdom. Of those sheep, Jesus said this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. As you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus went on to give a similar list concerning the goats, but how they did not care or do for those on that list. And Jesus said to them, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. Jesus' teaching Jesus was teaching that He identified so closely with those who had faith in Him that when a person helped or cared for them, it was as if they did so for Jesus Himself, right? Conversely, those who had abused or refused to care for them did the same thing to Jesus. In our passage here in Acts, we see this close, unbreakable union between Jesus and those united with Him through faith, right? This is the reason a church is called the body of Christ. Anyone found persecuting a church today is persecuting Jesus Himself. Jesus ransomed each believer with His very own blood. It is not a small thing then to mistreat one of those believers, to, dis, to mistreat a sheep from the flock of the Good Shepherd of Jesus, or the Good Shepherd Jesus. And Jesus does not take lightly or overlook the persecution of one of His sheep. So Saul, as he is here on the ground before Jesus, having persecuted the church, persecuted Jesus, Saul was on very dangerous ground. He had been breathing threats and murder against the church and Christ Himself. But Jesus had a purpose for Saul, right? And despite his wickedness and his atrocities against the church, Saul was also one of those whom Jesus had ransomed with His blood on the cross. Now I want to think about this moment for Saul for a second. There's no doubt that Saul had brought what had been brought at this point to complete submission and humility here, right? If you are here today and the Holy Spirit has brought you to understand who Jesus truly is and has humbled you to desire to serve and obey Him, then I think you can likely speak to that moment, to that period of your conversion and that impact that it had on you, right? That, that moment when you truly realized who Jesus was and He brought you to that humility and desire to serve Him and obey Him, but to understand who He is and who you are apart from Him.
While that impact always results, always results in a humbling and a recognition of our sins and a recognition of our complete failure to live up to God's perfect standard, I would dare say that impact varies somewhat and to some extent based on our lives that we had prior to our conversion. Brother Charles Bryan is a great example of this in my mind. And I know Todd has mentioned his father in this respect on, on certain or on different occasions speaking on this uh, the same thing really. My brother Charles would be the first to tell you, and he did, that he was a sinner and he was in need of a savior. He was a humble man who knew he had no hope outside of Jesus. But by all accounts, from anyone who knew him prior to salvation, he was a good man. As good a man as you can be as a lost man. He didn't live a wild life. He wasn't out causing trouble or breaking the law. I say that to say, Brother Charles's sins prior to his conversion, if I can use this terminology, paled in comparison to Saul's from a human perspective. And I can only imagine that the horror and sickness which engulfed Saul as he sat or lay or knelt there on the ground, hearing from Jesus and realizing the full weight of his actions and the rebellion he had had to Jesus himself, especially against the church, would have been debilitating for him. It would have been easy then for Saul to feel that the ground is where he needed to stay. There on the ground, unworthy to rise. Afraid of what Jesus might say or do next in response to this heavy persecution which He had brought on His sheep. Saul could not, he could not have been expecting mercy and grace at this point. Yet Jesus extended it. Immediately. Not only did Jesus, Jesus extend grace and mercy instead of putting Saul to death there on the spot, He told Saul, go wait in the city to hear the plans I have for you. Luke then tells us in verse 7 that the men who were with Saul heard the voice too. Later in Acts chapter 22, when Paul will tell this story again, he will say that they did not understand the voice though, and, and they did not hear with understanding. They heard a voice, but the voice was not to them, right? They didn't know what was said. They didn't understand what was said. They didn't see who the voice came from either. In fact, we don't know that Saul actually saw the face of Jesus at this point. In all other three accounts, the only thing Saul mentions was the light, right? seeing the light. We do know that Saul did see the risen Savior at some point, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. And that could have been here at conversion, but more likely I think it was probably later when Jesus discipled Paul personally before his ministry began. Either way, verse 8 tells us that Saul rose from the ground, and as he rose from the ground, he found himself blind. So these men who were with him had to lead him by the hand to Damascus. Now even though this light was very bright, I don't know that it was the brightness of the light which had caused Saul to be blind here. The other men who were with Saul, they don't seem to be blinded as they lead him to Damascus. Jesus certainly caused this temporary blindness only to be on Saul, right? For what purpose, we can't be 100% sure. It would seem, though, that this is part of 
His humbling conversion process. Jesus had a great purpose ahead for Saul. And for the next three days, Saul would have had only his thoughts and prayers to God to prepare for what Jesus had for him to do. So the picture we have here then, the picture which Luke has painted, is that, that of this man who was ascending and excelling in Judaism. As Paul would later acknowledge in Galatians 1, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age, many of his people, so extremely zealous for the traditions of his father. Excuse me, fathers. Saul had procured letters then in this effort from the hand of the high priest himself to go and destroy the people of the way. Saul was the picture of confidence and human accomplishment as he strolled into Damascus or up towards Damascus. But God had different plans than that for Saul. And now as Saul walks into Damascus, he does so blind and in need of someone holding his hand to find his way. Saul's lofty plans of threats and murder of Jesus' disciples were an afterthought by this point. According to verse 9, he remained blind for three days. And during those three days, he neither ate nor drank. Saul must have been thinking that he was paying for his sins by this blindness, maybe. There's nothing to indicate that during this time, Jesus spoke to Saul during that time and that he was going to regain his, his sight. For all intents and purposes, Saul may have thought that he was going to remain blind. And that was perhaps a punishment for what he had done to those who followed Christ. We can fairly assume that Jesus did not speak to him as he had, the last thing He told him was to go and wait three days to, to, wait from, to hear from Him again, right? In that three-day period, we see that Saul fasted. He neither ate nor drank. This could have been due to sadness. It could have been due to disgust of his actions against Jesus. It could have been due to confusion. But it was mainly due to prayer. It's what we see Saul doing in verse 11. He's praying during this period of time. Saul seems very destitute in some ways here, right? He's, he's blind. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. He doesn't know the purpose that Jesus has for him. He knows the great sins and atrocities that he had committed against Jesus and his followers and how wrong he'd been. He knows that to this point. And he doesn't know what's next. But we will see that Jesus does not leave Saul destitute here, right? He doesn't leave him in this place. We'll pick up more on that next week. As we conclude this, there's a few things that I want to try to bring to our attention and have us think about as we try to apply this in our lives. Some of it's probably pretty obvious. I hope we've picked up some of that as we've gone through this passage. But this passage is one of the more well-known passages in all of Scripture, really. And for good reason. I mean, it, it cannot be overstated the importance and impact that this, in, that this event had, the conversion of Saul, that it had on the church. Humanly speaking, and this is no exaggeration, we are sitting here today worshiping the risen Savior because of what happened on this day to Saul on the road to Damascus. But because of this passage being so well known, I think there have been some pretty strong opinions developed and some assumptions which I think are important to address in how we apply this. 
First, let me begin with what I think to be, again, an obvious point. This passage, it really is a strong passage against the free will doctrine of our Arminian friends. Prior to this day, no man had been able to reason with Saul prior to his conversion, right? His mind had been made up and he wasn't changing it no matter how eloquently a preacher spoke. He wasn't changing it because believers showed him love. He wasn't going to believe in Jesus because of some emotionally driven song that he heard. Paul didn't come here and see Jesus and then make a decision for Jesus. He didn't raise his hand, repeat a prayer with everyone's eyes closed. He didn't choose that day to accept Jesus into his heart. No man or his own clever concepts were going to convince Saul to believe in Jesus. No mere mortal or normal man anyways. The risen Savior was no mere man though. When Jesus came to Saul, Saul was converted to be one of the most faithful and zealous followers of Jesus there has ever been and there was no other option for him. There was no rejecting Jesus, nor was there an option to see Jesus as Savior, but then refuse to recognize Him as Lord. Yet, our Hartshell friends missed the boat on the other side as well. This was not some sudden act which had no prior foundation laid or some seed planted already. Yes, the act there on the road to Damascus was sudden and drastic, if you want to describe it that way, but Paul, later describing the same story of conversion in Acts 26, would say that Jesus told him, on the road, told him there on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The implication there was that Jesus had been pursuing Paul prior to this point, prodding or pricking him. This prodding and pricking had been hard or painful perhaps for Saul at times and ultimately futile for him to resist. Saul had heard Stephen reason and preach with the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit. He had likely heard the gospel message on several more occasions than just that. In all likelihood, Paul had seen the mighty works of Stephen as well as the other apostles. Paul was a smart man who knew the Old Testament. The fact he had not been able to successfully refute Stephen probably nagged at him. It was, it's very possible that the, the very reason Saul was so zealously against the church was because he was pushing as hard as he possibly could against the working of the Holy Spirit on his heart through the gospel which had been preached to him. Saul was absolutely not converted or saved prior to this point here on the road to Damascus. But the seed had been sown through the preaching of the gospel. This was an act of grace and mercy which Jesus extended to Paul and could not be rejected by Paul. Yet we must not see this as an act of compulsion either in the sense that Paul did not have to have a response. His conversion was one of sovereign divine grace. John Stott defines divine grace this way. He says, Divine grace does not trample on human personality. Rather, the reverse. For it enables human beings to be truly human. Meaning the way that God originally created us to be. It is sin which imprisons. It is grace which liberates. The grace of God so frees us from the bondage of our pride, prejudice, and self-centeredness as to enable us to repent and believe. It's exactly what happened to Paul and it's exactly what happened to each one of us at conversion. 
In Acts 22, Paul adds to this account by stating that upon being told that Jesus was the voice speaking to him, Paul then responded, What shall I do, Lord? Jesus did not violate Saul's personality or compel him to believe by turning him into some robot here. Saul's mind and heart had been pricked before this. And then at the point of conversion, he was given a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of that heart of stone, and that new heart desired to obey and follow Jesus. You will search far and wide without any success to find a place where Paul wrote of his conversion as anything other than abundant grace and mercy given to him by Jesus. Second, there are elements of Saul's conversion which we must understand were unique to him and not the normal way of conversion. I fear that some people walk around waiting for this same type of experience before they will believe. Others struggle to have confidence in their salvation because they haven't experienced this same or a similar drastic story of conversion. The truth, though, is this, and again quoting Stott, in order to be converted, it is not necessary for us to be struck by divine lightning, to fall to the ground or hear our name called out in Aramaic, any more than it is necessary for us to travel precisely to the same place outside of Damascus. Nor is it possible for us to be granted a resurrection appearance or a call to an apostleship like Paul's. So let us realize that this is not the normal story of salvation for believers in in, in many ways. And there are aspects of it which will never and can never happen again to any of us. Yet, there are aspects to the salvation of Saul that are present in all conversion stories and which we all can relate to. Paul would later ascribe conversion to God in his epistles in three separate ways. First, Jesus laid hold or arrested him. Second, Jesus illuminated Saul's inward being by a creative act, much like he did in Genesis when he said, let there be light. Third, mercy was poured out on him at conversion, abundantly, overflowing, filling his heart with faith and love. God's grace arrested him, shone into his heart, and swept over him. I think all of us who have been saved by God's grace can relate to that. Further, we've all been called to work for Christ, right? We might not have been given the scope of the ministry and work in which Paul had and was called to have, but we have all been called to work for Christ. God God calls us out of darkness into light, both for our own salvation and to serve Him by preaching the gospel and being His representative here on earth while He is away. In that way, our conversion and Paul's conversion are the same. Lastly and quickly, according to Paul in his letter in 1 Timothy, the mercy granted to him in salvation was for this reason, that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul stated of himself that he was the chief of sinners, right? I know we, we like to be humble, if we want to use that word, and we, we say that about ourselves, and we want to claim that at times. And that can be a good thing to have in our minds. And we need to have humility truly like that to where we believe that about ourselves. And we, we know that we are sin sinners and that we were nothing apart from Christ. We need that humility. But Paul had a good reason why he said that about himself. 
There, again, I've said this already, but there are very few people in the history of the church who have been more opposed and have tried to do more damage to the church and believers of Jesus than Paul. Yet Jesus chose to save and use Paul. And Paul says he did that as an example to all then and all in the future that God is merciful. There is no one too far gone. There is no one too wicked for God to save. There is no one too strong-willed for the Holy Spirit to be unable to make new. God gave us Paul as an example, not only to encourage ourselves, but to encourage us to go out and continue to preach and tell others of the Gospel and do it in confidence. Do it in faith. Even if we don't see the work done ourselves, we can have confidence and know that if it's His will, it will be done. He will convert. He will change lives. He will turn darkness into light. Paul is no... There's no greater example than than that of Paul. And I thank God for that example that we have. I thank God for Paul and what he's done, what he did in his life through the work of Christ. Let us stand.